February 18th, 2021. Time to do this, overtimers. If it is your first time to the party, my name is David Oliver, and this is my podcast, OT with Oliver. Today's guest, Missouri Sports Hall of Famer Jerry Royce. What do you think he was thinking when Lasorda pitched to Clark in Game 5? Stay tuned. Buckle up. Pitchers and catchers have reported to spring training. Opening day is scheduled for April 1st in Cincinnati. Yeah, sure. I'll play along. Talk Radio lost a giant this week with the passing of Missouri native Rush Limbaugh. Complicated guy. Whatever you think or say about him, he did bring back AM radio. Not enough time to get into this further. Parkway announced they will offer virtual learning for next year. Almost 6,000 students have already enrolled. Quick question. Why does it have to be either or? The LCC of 70 local jack-in-the-boxes has filed Chapter 11. See what happens when you raise my two tacos from 99 cents to a buck 19 in a year? Three things you should if you have not. On Prime Manchild, the Shea Cotton story about a can't-miss high school basketball player who missed. Chalk another one up to the brilliant organization that is the NCAA. Number two, Lent is around the corner. For my Catholic listeners, no fish fries this year. In my opinion, the best frozen option are the beer-battered cod fillets from Sam's. And get yourself some real tartar sauce, none of this craft or grocery store stuff. Here's where I ask you to subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends on Facebook. We've got some great guests coming up. This is the best way to not miss an episode. You can also go to our YouTube channel, OT with Oliver, to see previous podcasts and a feature we do after the conversations called St. Louis 7. Coach Robert Steeples with 7 debut Tuesday. You can see Jerry's 7 this Tuesday. Go check them out. Previous episodes include Terry Metcalf, Mel Gray, Randy Carricker, and others. Lastly, number three, if you missed it, This Is Us, Season 5, Episode 8, In the Room. The conversations in the parking lot between Toby and the husband being there for his wife with COVID, brilliant and fresh. So, Jerry Royce, 22 years in the bigs, eight different teams, starting with his hometown St. Louis Cardinals, only person in history to throw a no-hitter and sing on solid gold. Good dude, good talk. Welcome to the Overtime family, Jerry Rice. Let's go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. You know what I learned? Photography is a hobby. And I learned if you tilt the lens a certain way, the lines, the vertical lines behind you will align in a, in a pretty much straight up vertical manner, a one eight, uh, yeah, about 180 manner. And uh, I'm trying to get that right now. So yeah, we're pretty close to it. Is my vertical on my end working out? Oh, you're, yeah, you're in there. You're absolutely perfect. <laughs> no, you look good. Thanks for dressing up in sweats. God bless you. Well, I got my blues. I'm going St. Louis. Oh, is that, that, that yeah, that, you know, I forget that. I'm not much of a hockey fan. No apologies necessary. No, I did. I did go to one Golden Knights game. And I want to tell you, I was blown away at, at what, the, what kind of show they put on. A closed arena. There was never a moment of silence. And the electricity with that crowd was one of the damnedest things I have ever witnessed. I thought I'd seen it at baseball games, but no, nothing like an enclosed arena of 18,000. And it's constantly bumping, thumping, and loud. For those that don't know, You've been in Vegas for about, what, 27 years, you told me? 
Yeah, we're going on 27 years. And we are obviously enjoying it. You know, I, when I came out here originally, it was in 1994. I was working for ESPN and they had told me this. I was on a, a new contract. I had done three years with them and they had mentioned they would like for me to do regional games. And uh, with Arizona and Colorado coming into the league, I said, um, yeah, that sounds pretty good. We were in Los Angeles and ready to sell our home. And I said, let's take a look at Las Vegas. And we were surprised we came out here that it looks just like Los Angeles in a lot of areas, except there are places to play um, uh, all the all the games, the video games, the gambling games, even at supermarkets and drugstores. <laughs> Once we got past that, we said, you know what, this is a pretty nice place to live. So we've been here 27 years, all that time thinking that there would be a major league job for a major league ball club. But well, that train's left the station. You know, for folks I have friendships with that live in Vegas, they love the fact that there's always a show. There's always an artist in town, a band playing, a play. You can do anything, any night. You know, you're right about that. I've gone to a couple of concerts and they're the most casual things that you can imagine because uh, for some of the bigger known groups of, well, the 60s and 70s, the ones I followed back when I was in high school, they still tour. They don't have all the original members, but they play the songs. And in some cases, they sound a lot better than what they did when they were originally recorded. So uh, we went to a few shows where we saw some of those performers. Uh, probably the best show I saw was Johnny Rivers hmm. and was a Johnny Rivers fan back in the 60s, followed him through the 70s, through all of his changes. And then when I saw that he was appearing out here, we went to see him in an outdoor facility and you could walk around, you could walk up to a place and buy a beer or or whatever you wanted to do. Even if you wanted a place to bet at the casino, you could do it all while watching the performer. And it was the original performer with an even bigger and better band. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, the recording sessions back in the 60s, those were done, done in bits and pieces with um, some of the great studio musicians of the time. But now these musicians travel and they do shows on a regular basis. So uh, the product that comes with them is uh, in some cases superior to what the original was. In the late 80s, I was covering a Missouri Tiger basketball game and we caught blood, sweat, and tears at Caesars Palace. Isn't that something? It was great. Was it the original group? Yeah. Well, the lead singer wow. was, I don't know about the band, but the original singer was the original guy. David Clayton Thomas, was yeah. that him? Yeah, if you got David Clayton Thomas, you, you had a treat. So Vegas, just like Overland, Missouri, <laughs> yeah, there's some similarities. <laughs> Not many, but there are some. They both have water. <laughs> yeah, both you can, yeah, and you can breathe relatively clean air. Um, the people that we found here in Las Vegas, just as nice as the people that you find in Overland, at least back in the days that I lived there. Um, I visit every so often, every couple of years when there's an occasion to come in. Uh, I'll go in and have a chance to say hi to old friends, visit some places that still exist. Now, you don't get that here. In Las Vegas, if, uh, if a place is more than 10 or 12 years old, it's either being renovated or torn down with something new, bigger and better being built. With Overland, 
well, you still have some buildings that are well over 100 years old. A lot of homes are over 100 years old in the Overland uh, area. Do you hit Wolfie's when you come back? No. No, <laughs> Wolfie's, Wolfie's was never a stopover. No, um, don't do chuck a burger Steak and Shake, those places. It's not that I don't like it. It's just that at 70 years old, um, my digestive system says, you know what? We might reconsider this. So old. you're looking great. Do you get your shot yet? I got both of them. Oh. I couldn't believe this. My wife and I, I, I get up in the morning early, six, seven o'clock, watch the morning news, catch up with everything, and then retire to my office upstairs where I'm sitting right now. And what I do is I start reading, checking out emails, probably like everybody else. We got an email from Walgreens, a local Walgreens saying that we have COVID shots available, but you have to make an appointment. So I said, let's give it a shot. So, uh, so to speak. No pun so intended. I went ahead, signed up and got my wife signed up on consecutive appointments. And we went in and virtually no waiting, got our shots, came back three weeks later and repeated the process. So uh, we consider ourselves two of the most lucky people on the face of the earth for receiving our COVID shots in the manner that we did. For folks I know who have gotten the shots, maybe one day out of commission on the arm, but other than that, no big deal? The first shot was, was as easy as can be for both of us. The second one, well, it took a little bit out of us. In fact, uh, our, our method of operation now with both of us being in our, in our 70s is um, if there's something that keeps us down uh, for what, what used to be a couple of hours. Now we give it a day and then we give it up a follow-up day after that because we're at the point we have a lot of time to do whatever it is we want to do. We just want to make sure that when we do it, we enjoy it to its fullest. So we took a day with that second shot because both of us were feeling a bit under the weather. But that second day, we were rip-raring to go and continued on our normal schedule of things. So if you wouldn't mind here on the podcast, we document important people, places, and events in St. Louis's past and present. You are absolutely part of that category. Overland, what, 66, 67 state champions. What do you remember about those days? Wow, boy, those, those were some fun days. I just didn't realize that some 53, 54 years later that I would still be thinking about them. In fact, probably even more so now than I did over the preceding years, simply because uh, I've become closer through the internet and through some of the visits with um, some of the people that were on those teams. Hold one second. <coughs> this is live podcasting. We cough. <laughs> so we have visited and it's become increasingly important for all of us when we have a chance to talk about those days to visit. And then because the memories have slipped in some cases, uh, there's always somebody around to supply the information that has disappeared from our memories. So it's a lively conversation and it brings back a lot of good memories. You get a nice warm and fuzzy about it when I think about it, even though back in those days, uh, uh, 16, 17 and 18, I was wondering what the world was like, particularly on the West Coast where they had water, they had surfing and just about everything else that was um, made up to be the California dream. Fortunately, I got to live that California dream playing for the Dodgers. So 
Um, it was something that I had hoped that I could do. I didn't know how it was going to happen. And when I look at the, the way things transpired over the last 50 or so years, uh, I'm just kind of surprised at the way that things have happened going here, then there, going here, then there, and ultimately leading back to a lot of conversation with people where it started. That's back in St. Louis, particularly Overland. And where it started, can you tell me who was Alfred Helwig? Alfred Helwig, there are a couple of them. There are three Alfred Helwigs that I know of. First of all, my grandfather who emigrated from Germany well over a hundred years ago. And he did it with his brother. His brother went to Colorado, wanted to become a, a gold miner. He eventually did that. But my grandfather stayed in St. Louis, the South St. Louis area, and worked as a plumber for a number of years. Uh, the second Alfred Helwig was his son and my uncle. The third Alfred Helwig is my cousin. And he now lives comfortably in a rather warm Fort Myers, Florida. So he's not in Vegas, but he's enjoying the same kind of scenery. No, well, you mean from Florida? Yeah. Um, palm trees, maybe, maybe some of the same kind of plants. But Florida has a lot of humidity, particularly in the summer. Here, it's just plain hot. In fact, when the wind blows, I've always joked when I've done ball games about playing a game in a hairdryer because the winds sometimes shoot out at 25, 30 miles an hour and the flags look like they've been starched in place. So uh, you have that desert kind of landscape and lifestyle and place that up against the hot, humid that you're gonna get in Florida. Benefits to both, particularly this time of year. <laughs> so you go to high school in Overland, you get drafted by the Cardinals. Do you remember the call when the, they called to tell you? You know, I didn't get the call from uh, the Cardinals. I was working that day. In fact, what I've tried to do is chronologically go back and remember where I was in those days of late May and early June of 1967. Um, of course, there was the state championship baseball team. We ended that in the latter part of May on one weekend. And then it was time for high school graduation. But also mixed in there was the amateur free agent draft. And to the best that I can find, it occurred on June 6th. Uh, I had a tryout with the Atlanta Braves on June 1st down at, well, Bush Stadium 2. So I'm piecing those different days together, but I also held a job not knowing exactly what was going to happen with my immediate future. I had already signed a letter of intent to attend Southern Illinois University on a combined baseball and basketball scholarship and was all set to attend uh, once the fall began. But baseball came calling on the draft on June 6th. I was selected second by the Cardinals. Uh, it was my mother who gave me a call while I was working at Boyd's. You remember Boyd's? Oh, absolutely. I was working at Boyd's in Northwest Plaza, selling men's shirts, socks, underwear, all that, except for suits. So that's when I got the call. So I was a little bit surprised it was the Cardinals because they had not been out front about their interest in me. They were more or less in the background, but they were watching and they decided to draft me second. So, you know, for me, that was, a, that was a, I guess, a benefit of unintended consequences because with that draft, 
it set into motion my baseball career, which spanned over 22 different seasons. And um, a lot of it I didn't plan. A lot of it just happened, and I reacted to it. In high school, didn't you play with a son whose dad was an agent or a scout? Uh, you're talking about George Sylvie. Jim Sylvie was the name of the teammate. Yeah, he was on the state championship team with us. And his dad was, um, I think, the farm director or head of scouting for the Cardinals. And they lived not more than a mile from where, we, where I grew up. So uh, there was a familiarity, although I, in passing, prior to being drafted by the Cardinals, I just said hi, maybe uh, here and there. Once you're drafted uh, by the Cardinals, you're kind of on the fast track. Did I read right, Jerry, that your AAA manager was Warren Spahn? That's right. That's crazy. Uh, when Warren retired as an active player, he had a number of offers to be a major league pitching coach, but opted to manage in the minor leagues because, well, he didn't believe that he could fulfill himself totally as a pitching coach. He wanted to manage. And I can understand that because a lot of guys want the control and they want to be in control of the whole game. So he opted to do it and train as a minor league manager in the Cardinals organization. He chose Tulsa because it was close to his farm that he had in Oklahoma. So he could actually commute if he wanted to. It was probably an hour or so drive from his farm to Tulsa, but he got a place and when there was a chance, he would, have, he would go back home. So it was somewhat uninterrupted for him and it was a best case scenario. He never did get the big league managing job that he hoped he would, but he ultimately took a couple of pitching coach jobs because he realized that managing in the minor leagues is really tough because you don't get a lot of help. He, um, he had one player coach, he didn't have a pitching coach and he had a trainer and the trainer did everything that he didn't, such as arrange the flights or the bus rides or bringing a player into Tulsa or sending a player out from Tulsa, whether it was to the big leagues or down to the minor leagues. It was his job to do all those things. So uh, people in the minor leagues back in the 60s wore a lot of different hats. And I just noticed today, no, earlier, earlier this week that the Dodgers will travel with nine different uh, uniform personnel who aren't players. That includes trainers, coaches, camera people, and um, psychologists, just about everything you can name. Back in those days, we had a manager and a trainer and a player coach, and that was it. So you did not take the call when you got drafted. Did you get the call when you were promoted? Um, well, let's backtrack a little bit. I eventually talked to the Cardinals and they invited, since I was under 18 at the time, they said, bring your parents down and we'll have a conversation. Uh, we did it after my uh, 18th birthday, so I could have signed on my own, but my parents, myself, met in Stan Musial's office. It was the only year he was general manager of the Cardinals. Hmm. So we met in his office and we talked money, we talked opportunity and all these different things that the Cardinals uh, would do or any team would do and what they tried to do and they were honest about it you know a college education is an important thing we understand that we're competing against college but what we're going to give you right here is an opening that you can't get in college because you'll be learning on the job plus 
we'll give you money for a college scholarship based on what we're allowed to do. Back in those days, it was just a couple of thousand a semester. Uh, school didn't cost that much, but still a couple thousand per semester. Uh, it wasn't a whole lot, but it, it took care of everything. Everything that I needed to attend school as I found out later. Um, so I did sign because I thought that was the best opportunity for me. And well, as things turned out, 22 year career, and I have a chance to sit here and talk to you 30 years after I made my last start. You ever see the movie Moneyball? I did see it. What'd you think of it? When the whole, the whole signing Billy Bean thing, was that realistic to you? It's hard to say because Billy Bean and the Oakland A's operate just a little bit different than what a lot of uh, major league teams do. Uh, they were somewhat corporate, some of the teams that I dealt with. Others were a little more open. Oakland was a lot more open than a lot of other teams because they couldn't afford to spend money like some of them uh, wealthier ball clubs. So they had to make do and be a bit more innovative in an effort to uh, win pennants. And it seemed to work in the 70s because three times they went to the World Series and came home world champions a couple of those times. So um, Billy Bean was just a little bit different and he evolved from the way things were done in the 70s and 80s with Oakland on a shoestring budget. And he made good because Oakland kept on winning and they were a powerhouse in the late 80s. You know, you could not have played, no, you could have played on those Oakland A's teams because they allowed you to wear a mustache. <laughs> they encouraged you to do it. <laughs> Without uh, the Cardinals. Yeah, it was um, Charlie Finley that was considered an outcast. And every other major league owner, at least from my perception, viewed him as the enemy. But Charlie uh, had a lot of great ideas. And if they had listened to him, well, baseball would be a lot different today. You know, Charlie came up with an idea when free agency was being discussed. He said, make every player a free agent every year, then we'll draft them. And if base baseball immediately, because it was said, Charlie came up with this idea. They said, we're not going to do anything that Charlie says. Now, I remember being a player representative for about 10, maybe 12 years. And Marvin Miller talking about this in a meeting they said if they had listened to Charlie, we wouldn't be here today looking for the advances in our players' agreement with the ownership that we have today. Because Charlie was just that, uh, just had that kind of thought process. So, you know, that's, uh, that's just the way, you know, things were done back in the era of, of Charlie Finley. So if the Cardinals don't trade you and they don't trade Carlton, do you have another ring on your finger? Uh, you know, that's hard to say. Uh, getting back to the mustache thing, I decided to grow it. I had braces on my teeth during the 1971 season. And once those braces came off, I entertained the possibility of growing a mustache. I did. I liked it. And then I said, um, you know, let's keep it because there was no rules. Nobody ever talked about it. Besides, the Cardinals had Dick Allen back in 1970. And you remember those big mutton chop sideburns? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He grew them all the way down his ear, all the way up to the edge of his, um, of his lip, and then contoured it and cut it in such a way that he had mutton chops on both sides. Now, but what's the difference between hair on your face with mutton chops and hair over your lip like a mustache? I didn't even give it a thought. Besides, it surprised me that Mr. Bush was so much against the mustache 
because all of the pictures that I've seen of his father showed him wearing a big bushy type mustache. For all I know, maybe he hated his father and the mustache <laughs> represented that. So I don't know what the deal was, why he was upset about it, why he demanded that I be traded. Uh, I actually for years thought it was just money. We were a few thousand dollars apart. And you know, back in those days, a few thousand dollars went, went a long way a lot different than what it is today. So um, he had he said what he wanted. He was angry about Carlton demanding more money. He was upset with Marvin Miller trying to get a players union and do things for players that nobody ever dreamed of before. So he fought it and he took it he took it out on trades of Carlton and myself. So what happens now we go into that alternate universe theory. You know, I have talked about this. I can't tell you how many times that I've discussed this. Uh, what would have happened? This is always the question. I, I got it when I came in to visit uh, the Cardinals for their winter warmups. Uh, I've got it from different authors who have written books about the Cardinals. And they all want to know the same thing. If the Cardinals hadn't traded you, hadn't traded Carlton. And then if you want, you can throw in Mike Torres, Fred Norman, who had a couple of really great seasons with Cincinnati and won a few World Series with them. If they hadn't traded those guys, where would the Cardinals have ended up? Well, there's only three possible answers. The Cardinals and the players would have been either better off, roughly the same, or less than what they actually came out to be. And all of this depends on one step at a time. Every time you take a step forward, that changes something in your direction. So one little thing could have led to a great season by one of us or somebody getting hurt and having a poor season. And who's to say that a better deal wouldn't have come along for Carlton, myself, or Mike Therese, Fred Norman, or anybody else. Mike Cuellar is another one they discussed. If, um, if a better deal hadn't come along, that could have helped the Cardinals with a player that would have benefited them more than what the player was supposed to have done had he stayed with the team. You know, what would the Cardinals' fortunes have been? It's an impossible question to answer, but a lot of people like to think about it, like to discuss it, because in St. Louis, that's what you do. You discuss all these different things and you do it for years, you do it for decades, you do it for generations. It's what makes us quaint. Quaint is, is just part of it, but it's baseball conversation. It comes up whenever certain names are mentioned, and it always begins with, um, with a lead-in of something like, if only they hadn't traded him. If only they had kept this guy. If only they had paid him his money. All of those different things, they're true. Who knows what would have happened? So the only answer that I can give anybody in St. Louis you who are sitting there and those of you who will eventually watch this is who knows because there are so many different factors that would have to been considered to see exactly what the cardinals fortunes would have been did you like pitching in the astrodome yeah you know i did once i got used to it pitching inside takes a little bit of um getting used to because it's hard to believe that you're in a structure that is enclosed that is that large. So it creates its own kind of atmosphere. Uh, it was always comfortable as far as temperature. 
the humidity varied, and I don't know why, because it was always hot and humid in Houston, particularly in the summertime, uh, like it is anywhere else. But uh, in the Astrodome, it had its own environment. The ball, according to hitters, didn't seem to carry as well. And, uh, and it was a big ballpark to begin with, 375. It was one of those cookie cutter uh, ballparks in terms of dimensions, 330 down the lines, 375 to the gap and 400 to center field. But the ball just didn't seem to carry as well. Uh, and I was asked, uh, was it a pitcher's park? And I've always answered, yeah, when I have my uh, command of my pitches and I can throw them <laughs> where they want, they're a real pitcher's park. They're a hitter's park when I don't. You know, you've got a book out that I have not had the opportunity to read, but I want to plug it a little bit. Bring in the- well, Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It just so happens that a copy of my, of my book is on the desk where this is sitting. Let me bring it up like this. And you were about to say? Bring in the right-hander. There it is. It's a very well-reviewed book. One of the quotes that I thought was great was your motto of work fast, change speeds, throw strikes. Well, that wasn't my motto. I stole that from pitching coach uh, with, a, with the Pirates, Ray Miller. Uh, Ray had t-shirts made up for his pitchers wherever he was a coach. And it, it was work fast, change speeds, throw strikes. That's a mantra. And if every pitcher listens to it, uh, you got a pretty good chance of being successful. So with Ray, he talked about these things. It wasn't about velocity. It wasn't about spin rate. It was about location. And to me, pitching is still about location. All of those different things, um, that are discussed today, as I mentioned, spin rate and all of those other things, you know, those are all good. And had they been available when I played, I would have paid attention to them. But you can't take all of that out there on the field with you because you have to somehow throw strikes. And that's the key to the game and locating where those strikes are going to be. If you can do that, you got a pretty good chance of, um, of winning a ball game. So from Houston, you have a successful stint in Pittsburgh, then you have the opportunity to go to the Dodgers. Did I read this right? That part of the deal was, oh my goodness, you know, hand behind your back, you can get traded to the Dodgers only if you guarantee a five-year deal. Was that actually how that went down? You know, there was a time when the Dodgers were wanting to lock up the players that they had. Uh, they didn't, they, they figured if they get a player in his mid-20s, no later than his mid-20s, then lock him up in a deal because they saw the trend towards salaries and said these things are just going to leapfrog at a rate that's a lot faster uh, than a lot of teams are going to be able to pay. So they said, what we'll offer players are guaranteed contracts, and we will pay them at a certain uh, year's price. For instance, uh, pay them at 1980 prices because 1985, that same price for a player similar is gonna be double, maybe even triple. So it may cost us a little bit on the front end, but on the back end, if this guy fits into our plans, then it's gonna be cheap money toward the end of his contract. And if it doesn't work out for us, we can deal the player because he does have a contract that's favorable to more budgets. So I thought it was pretty forward thinking and it worked for me because I was in that 
uh, mindset at that time, 10 years in the big leagues. And I knew that uh, the average was four, four to five years as a big league pitcher. I had already doubled that. So I knew uh, just how long I was going to be able to play, but I went beyond my expectations. So uh, that long-term contract provided quite a bit of security and it allowed me to focus more on my baseball acumen and improving myself than if I just had a series of one-year contracts. And was your no-hitter with the Dodgers? It was. June 27, 1980. All right. Begs the question, what is more fun, throwing a no-hitter or singing on solid gold? <laughs> well, uh, definitely pitching a no-hitter. Singing on solid gold, well, if you want to call what anybody views on solid gold singing, uh, that is a poor excuse for us. None of us could sing, and we knew that, but we kept our day job, so we knew that it was just going to be one of those things uh, that was exciting for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or six weeks, and we got an appearance out of it, a couple of appearances on national TV, and then had some fun in the process. So we were rock stars for maybe a week. Were you married at the time? I was. Oh, good for you. I was thinking this was like a chick move. This is like something you did to increase your cred. Well, you know, it could, it, it definitely could have done that because I saw things out there performing on stage. You know, after, after we did it a couple of times, the movements and whatever, uh, then I knew I had a pretty good idea what I was doing. So I had a chance to look at the room and I said, you know, this, I can understand why guys could, uh, or people, rock stars could get addicted to this lifestyle because the highs, when you're out there performing, especially if, you, if you're good, you know what you're doing, uh, that could be similar to what an athlete would experience on the field. There's kind of a parallel there as we both climb the mountain of success, athletes and performers. How many times have you been married? One time, two times? No, three. Three times? So yeah. I would imagine at some point in time as you're in L.A., L.A. is different than Pittsburgh. L.A. is different than Houston. Did you go into that not knowing what you were walking into or what was it like when you when you got your feet in L.A.? You know, I was more concerned about playing ball for the Dodgers. Uh, remember the times. There were a lot of artificial turf stadiums. And I mentioned it earlier, they were referred to as cookie cutter stadiums. So the game was played in multi-purpose venues. Uh, Dodger Stadium wasn't one of those. Dodger Stadium was a real ballpark with a real history. And when you walked on the field at Dodger Stadium, you could, and it still happens to me today, you can feel the essence of those who came before me. Those like Walter Alston, or Sandy Koufax or Don Drysdale or any number of the great ballplayers that put on the Dodger uniform and performed and performed well into the postseason. Uh, up until last year, it took them 32 years before they finally got another world championship, but they did have a number of great performances over the 50 or so years that they had been open. And it was hallowed ground, much like Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium was in, uh, in New York, when you walked in Yankee Stadium, you realized you were walking on that same grass, that same lawn that Hall of Famers from 100 years ago actually were. Well, maybe not 100 years ago because it opened in 1923 and I'm talking about 1980. So for some years ago, 
if you stood at the plate and batted, that was the same batter's box that Babe Ruth stood. It was the same one that Lou Gehrig stood at. And in Dodger Stadium, it was the same mound, even though it's been mended and moved out and changed with the clay. It was in the same location that Sandy Koufax did. When I towed that corner of the rubber, that's where Sandy did. And then on the other side is where Drysdale did it. So there was history in every single turn. And that was important. That was especially important to me. And when I think about it now, uh, 40 years later, I still get a tingle to say that I actually stood in that place and had a chance to perform in front of a crowd, a big crowd, just like they did. And now when Kershaw throws, he says, this is where Jerry Royce threw pitches. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think, I think what he's done is uh, he's created his own path. And, well, I guess we'll see exactly where, where and when it ends uh, at the end of this year. His contract's up. So we'll see just what's going to happen with him. I don't know how long he wants to play. Um, you know, with what he's gone through, he's had back problems. He's in his mid-30s, and he realizes he's smart enough to realize that he's not going to be the same pitcher he was in his mid-20s. But he's smart enough to make adjustments. But he still has that urge to play and the desire to win that's second to none. So how long he wants to stay with that? while his three kids are growing up, uh, you know, he has something that a lot of us would be envious of, and he has a choice in the matter. He's earned enough money in his career to do just about anything he wants and never really have to worry about it. So he owns two homes. He can make his home where he is now in Dallas, well, the, at least before he went to spring training, or in Los Angeles, and then chart a course for what he wants to do with his, the rest of his life without having to worry about it financially. It's a gift. He's earned it. And for me, I say congratulations on a job well done. Well, he finally got his one ring. You've got yours in 1981. You showed me the book. Did you got the ring on? No, I don't wear the ring. I keep that downstairs. I wear it when I go out. I don't wear it around the house because if I did, I'd have to take it off when I'm, when I'm doing something because I don't want to scratch it or whatever. And and then my memory not being what it once was, I'll leave it somewhere and it may sit there. So I keep it in one spot and I know exactly where to look for it. In that series, you didn't have your, your best stuff in game one. Game five, and for people who don't remember, Rod Guidry was nails. I mean, he was not somebody who was going to give up more than two or three runs, even on his worst day. So you don't have the effort you want in game one. You're coming into game five. A complete game, by the way. What do you remember about that game now? What is it that uh, you're most happy with that effort? Well, in the World Series, we lost the first two games in New York. And we came back to Los Angeles knowing we had to win the next three in order to take a leg up on the Yankees. And we won each of those games by one run. Each game was exciting. Uh, Fernando obviously tired from the full season that he put in, the number of innings that he threw, and then going every fourth day in the postseason was showing signs that he was struggling, but he hung on to win the first game at home to make the series two games to one. The game on Saturday uh, was, boy, what a game that was. The lead exchanged a number of different times, and uh, ultimately the Dodgers won, evening up the series. 
which meant a, a showdown between both Gidry and myself, both pitching against each other in the first game of the series where the Yankees won. I gave up a run in the second and the Yankees led one to nothing up until the seventh inning. And Gidry, from the second inning on, had retired 15 of 16 Dodger batters, eight of them on strikeouts. So he, he is running at the top of his game full speed. And suddenly he faces Pete Guerrero and hangs a slider. And Guerrero hits it for a home run. That tied the game. Five pitches later, he tried to sneak a fastball past Steve Yeager. Yeager is a fastball hitter, and he hit the ball out of the park. So just like that, in the course of five pitches, the game, the momentum of the game changed, and the momentum of the World Series changed. I held on. We won the game and went up three games to two with uh, the final two games, if needed, back in New York. Had a rain delay of, uh, of one day, and we finally played the game on Wednesday. That gave everybody a chance to rest because we've been going at it pretty hard. And then we came out, and meaning the Dodgers, and, and broke up everything and won the game 9-2 to two to win the World Championship. Uh, what I remember on the way home was three weeks we had a series of ups and downs unlike anything that I had ever experienced. And I remember sitting on the plane, getting up, after we'd been up maybe an hour, I couldn't fall asleep immediately because of the excitement. And I remember looking up and down the plane and seeing a couple of overhead lights on. Guys were trying to read, and I can see in some cases, they just closed their eyes trying to drink in everything that had just happened. And I didn't have to say a word to anybody as our eyes caught. We each knew that what, what we had done and we finally achieved the ultimate as far as what a baseball player wants. And that is to win a World Series. You know, I want to thank you very much for your time. I've got a few more questions. Every podcast, Jerry, that I do, I cheat a little bit. There's like two or three questions I know I'm going to ask. This is one I knew I was going to ask you. Well, let me I, get a drink of water while you do it. I think I can listen to drink water at the same time. Hey, that's that Rittner High School education coming through loud and clear. 1981, you won the World Series. 1985, you're back in the playoffs. You're playing in the Cardinals. You're up 2 nothing. They come back and they tie it up. Again, here's the question. You see your manager, not to be critical, but I'm dying to ask the question because I'm just curious. Are you in your head thinking, why are we pitching the Clark? Yeah, because I'm standing out in the bullpen with Kenny Howell, a right-handed reliever, and we have the lineup card with us, and we can read it just like anybody else. And I remember before the first game of the series, Lasorda talking about pitching to Jack Clark and saying that he's the only home run threat and against the Dodgers historically Clark in a clutch situation seemed to come through more than just about any other player and so in this series with runners on base and the game on the line we're going to walk Jack Clark or at least pitch around him in fact he said it twice he says this is the only guy in the lineup that can do that against us and I was surprised with those words still in, 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 um, emblazoned on my mind that with the situation and needing fear already facing him once that Lasorda would order a walk to him. The next batter was Andy Van Slyke, the left-hander. And that, that was a situation where I would be called into the game to pitch to Van Slyke. But Whitey had Brian Harper on, on deck 
and a, a reserve catcher. And Harper would have pinch hit for Andy Van Slyke. The matchup would have been me against Harper as opposed to Needenfuer against Clark. And then you might have another ring. Maybe. Again, it's that alternate universe theory. If this hadn't happened, this would have happened. Well, well, then, maybe, then we couldn't go crazy, would. folks. Go crazy. I remember Jack saying that. I saw that enough. And, and when I see that uh, highlight, it comes up every so often uh, on, online or on TV. And I, and I look at it and I say, well, Lasorda had the first choice. I never second-guessed him. I first-guessed him because he said in the meeting, we're not going to pitch to him, but he decided to pitch to him. And everybody in the ballpark was wondering, why are you going to do this when you don't have to? But Tom had a hunch. But give him credit because he managed a lot of games by the seat of his pants and made a hunch. And more times than not, it worked out. This one particular time, well, it worked out better for Jack Clark and the Cardinals, and they went on to play in the World Series. He just loved baseball. Unfortunately, you know, we've we've lost Lasorda. Uh, yeah, Tommy. And the one... You talked about emblazed in your memory kind of a story deal. I was covering the Cardinals, right? And right. Tommy was always naked in the locker room. It's like <laughs> he, he never wore clothes. You can't and, unsee that. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> and the Dodgers had blown a lead in like a three-game series, like second game or whatever. He comes storming out of the manager's office naked, yeah. rolls all the way across the buffet table. And says, you guys don't deserve to eat. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Do you remember that at all? Or, or like those kind of things? I think I've seen that done one or two times. And I can understand the frustration. Uh, and he did it for effect. He did a lot of things for effect. Uh, he liked to go and argue with umpires. Not because he was right, but because it was for effect. If he did it at home, it was to get the crowd going. And he figured that if he could get the crowd going, then the players would respond in kind and somehow it would ignite a rally. Uh, maybe that's what he meant that particular night. Maybe the frustration just got over him, but he did it. He knew what he was doing. It was calculated. So it wasn't one of those spontaneous anger things. He figured that if he did something like that, then the team's fortunes would change. Played with a lot of great players. Steve Garvey, we've mentioned... Valenzuela, you know, just down the lineup, Bill Russell, Ron Save, tons of great players. You also played with Rick Monday. Did you ever ask him about the burning flag incident? No, I never did. I never did. We never got around to it. Uh, you know, it, he's been asked about that so many times uh, that for me to bring it up, it would have been just like someone else asking him, another reporter. And to be honest with you, I didn't want to get a stock answer and I didn't know if that was something he wanted to talk about. Uh, he had to talk about it. And, uh, and I think today, even today, he likes to talk about it and that's okay when it's done in a proper context, but we used to uh, carpool to the ballpark and there were a number of occasions to ask him just that, but for whatever reason, I never did, but we talked about a number of other things. So, no, I never did talk to him about that. So here's my personal Jerry is a nice guy story. You have a niece, Mary. A niece named Mary? Mary Helwig. 
Uh, cousin. Cousin. She yeah. worked with my best friend's dad. And so when the Dodgers would come into town, Mr. Dooley. And so when the Dodgers would come into town, you'd flip us some tickets. And I actually got to meet you twice, not in the in the locker room, but like in that vestibule kind of an area deal. And you would sign our balls and you'd be very nice to us. In fact, my friend, when I told him that we were going to be talking with you, he, of course, knows that he's the second biggest part of your career other than being on this podcast. But he said, you might remember the fact that you actually signed his same ball three times. I did that. That's what he says. I don't know why I would do that. Because <laughs> he's question, an idiot. My question would be, why did he give it to me three different times to sign? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I thought you were going to tell me that there was an occasion and you, and you asked me to sign something and I blew you off. No, not that me. Occasion. And I again, I think it's because the relationship with the, the you said niece or cousin yeah. so one of the things about your career and we haven't talked enough about it and we're going to run out of time first of all more than 200 wins longevity is not to be underrated especially when you look at starters nowadays that pitch 130 innings you are over 250 multiple times and if you want to pick one stat and i'm not a big stat guy but jerry you got to 200 wins, second fastest in Major League history, without winning 20 games. And to me, what that means is just, I, I went out, I took the ball, I did the best I could, and I was good enough, long enough to accomplish what I accomplished. You know, it's a good way to put it, good enough, long enough. Uh, there were some great moments, and there were some not-so-great moments. But I couldn't put together enough great moments to to win 20 games it's it's one of those things it happened and uh, when I, I don't think that much about it today uh, because that, that that's way into the past yeah yeah one thing I did find is that if you stick around long enough a lot of asterisks are going to follow you this is one of them the other one I, there's an asterisk of winning two games in one day in Wrigley Field back in 1982 uh, that's that's another one. So you start putting all these things together. Uh, you know, another one that occurred to me, and I just found out about it, is that the total number of wins on artificial surface during the 1980s. Somebody threw that one at me. I had no idea about those things, but it, it for me, I find it entertaining that fans can look at baseball in so many different ways to come up and ask questions that nobody else ever thought of. Who would ever think to say, which pitcher won the most games on AstroTurf back in the 1980s? Let's give a list. I would never guess that. Talk about fans asking questions. I threw out to, I call them overtimers, the people that listen to the podcast, if they had any questions for you. And they had multiple. Here were the two most asked questions. Yeah. One is, lineups today and how they are constructed, your thoughts? You know, I've heard, I don't know this for sure, I haven't been around a major league ball club since I broadcast radio games for the Dodgers back in 2008. And that may as well have been two lifetimes ago because things have changed that much. But what I understand in talking to other people that are around major league teams and, and how they work is that the lineups 
a lot of times are constructed by people in the front office the day of the game. They take all of the information and put it in and collate it in some way that they figure out the best way to defeat that team they're playing that night and the opposing pitcher and other pitchers on that team. So a lot of thought, a lot of effort go into making up these lineups. And there are a lot of managers that understand just that. They can't do it themselves, but they're given control of the game once it begins. And they have the option to make changes if they see fit or to make some a last minute lineup change if they have to, uh, because they know things on a level that the people who comprise these lineups during the course of the day won't get to know. So that is what I understand the way lineups are done, not only at the big league level, but a lot of times at the minor league level. So I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. I don't even know if it is, but if it is the case, it's just the way the game is run today. Toughest lineup while a Dodger that you had to face. Most votes were for the Giants. Really? Uh, you know, I don't know. I never really looked at it that way uh, because in the years, the, the early years that I was with the Dodgers from 80 to 85, I was pitching my best and there was no lineup out there that I thought that could beat me. I just believed that. And then I went out there with that kind of attitude. And uh, you can see from the numbers that more times than not, I was victorious. So um, during those years with the Dodgers, the toughest lineup, uh, Cincinnati was still pretty tough. You know, on a given night, there was any team, it didn't matter if they were at the bottom of the rung of the ladder, they could beat you. So. Uh, there was no way of letting up. But the, the hardest lineup, no. I never really thought of it in those terms. As we get ready to wrap it up, and again, for those people who like this episode, you can hear more with OT with Oliver wherever you get your podcast. We're going to do a quick St. Louis 7 with Jerry. I want to talk a little bit about the photography, but before we do that, I thought just some things deserve to end the way they end, and you got the pitch, and you got to walk off the mound the last time you were wearing a uniform. That's right. That was on October 3rd, 1990. Uh, Jim Leland, manager of the Pirates. Uh, and in 1990, we won uh, the National League East Championship in St. Louis on a Sunday. The final game was scheduled for Wednesday. I told him I was retiring. And he asked me if I'd like to pitch the final game of the season. And I said, absolutely. So I went out there and in the top of the sixth, after getting one out, he came to take me out of the ball game. I didn't give him the ball. I told him instead, I said, I'd like to keep this ball. This is the last out I'll ever get. He says, I don't care about the baseball. I want to shake the hand of a man who pitched 22 years in the big leagues. Congratulations. So I walked off the mound to a standing ovation and it was the only time, only time in 22 years that I ever took a curtain call. I went back out there, looked around and saw some 30,000 fans who came to that ball game. Uh, and it was just my way of saying thanks for not only all the great years in Pittsburgh, but all of the great years wherever I played. So it's quite a send off, especially for a guy that wasn't Hall of Fame caliber. Uh, this is the kind of treatment that Hall of Fame ball players deserve. They've earned it. A lot of them just don't get it. 
but I was one of the fortunate few that got a chance to say when my career was over and walk off that field for the last time with my held, head held up high. Very nice. So people want to find out more about the book. People want to find out more about Jerry. Hey, we don't talk about the book unless we have the book. The book. <laughs> you can get it at jerryroyce.com. I sign every one of them. I inscribe every one of them. I make the mailing label and I'm the guy that puts it in the basket at the post office. It's bringing the right hander. Something new and I'll let you know right here, uh, this will be the first announcement is that it's coming out in paperback according to the publisher sometime this fall. So if you can't get it in a hardcover, you can probably pick it up in a paperback and just kind of zoom through it. It's a lot of good baseball stories from the 70s and 80s from a kid who grew up in St. Louis in the 50s and the 60s and had the opportunity to live his baseball dream. It's all there. And I take care of these things usually within 24 hours. All right, tell me what was the first stadium you took a photograph of? Hmm. You know, I have to think about that. Let's see, it might've been, um, I did it first in 1988. Uh, I wanted to, I didn't know if I was going to play. I couldn't find a team until just about this time back in 1988 when the White Sox decided to take a shot. Uh, it worked for them because I won 13 games for a team that was 32 games under 500. So it worked well for both of us. I took my camera because I wanted to document what I thought could be the final year of my baseball career. Uh, so I carried a camera and wherever we went, that's when I started taking pictures. I guess the first part that I shot was Comiskey Park. I got an absolutely perfect Midwest day. You don't get these too often. It was in early May and I walked around the ballpark, the temperature 75, 80 degrees, a slight breeze, hardly any humidity. And I got some of the great pictures of Comiskey Park and I put them all on Flickr. So if you wanna see what some of these ballparks look like back in the eighties, and I did it again in 1990, my final year, because it was in the National League this time. Uh, and I cataloged every, every place we visited. So there's a pictures of a lot of ballparks that no longer exist. And when I post them on Facebook, I get a lot of sentimental recollections by fans who, who have followed me on Facebook and say they love these ballparks for a number of different reasons. It's where my grandpa, who passed away last year, used to take me. It's where I saw uh, and met my wife or my husband. We used to sit in this section. And I remember this particular moment when we did that. So all of these things, uh, it, it's, it's a good thing for the people who see it and take the time to write about it and share it with other people. These are memories that people have of these ballparks. And like the people in St. Louis who remember Sportsman's Park or Bush Stadium one, these are memories that last a lifetime. I enjoyed our conversation. Did I forget to bring something up? Anything else? No, I think we, we pretty well got it covered. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And please stay safe. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Okay. And another one for the books. Thanks for subscribing, sharing with your peeps. We'll do it again on Thursday. Don't forget Jerry St. Louis 7 debuts on YouTube channel OT with Oliver this Tuesday. So, as we do... Thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.